Let's turn to Psalm 32 for our Old Testament reading this morning. Psalm 32. One of the great psalms of confession of sin and repentance. Loved ones, let us hear this word for what it is, the very word of our God. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for day was For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord Mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Our New Testament reading and our sermon text is Matthew 26, verse 69 through 27, verse 10. The word of the Lord. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, 
What is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that day, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who is priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Thus ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. Let's pray and ask Him to bless it to our hearts. Lord, You have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? We would not lean on our own understanding. We would not be wise in our own eyes. We would hear You speak. We pray that You would now, by Your Word and Spirit, come and speak Your Word and write it on our very hearts. Make us tender, sensitive, full of faith. Lord, not hard, stubborn unbelief. We pray that You would do this by the sovereign grace of your Spirit. Amen. What do you do with the fact that you are a sinner? That you've sinned against Jesus Christ? You might say, well, hang on a minute, Pastor. You're making an assumption there. Uh, me? A sinner? Uh, l- 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 let's, l- let's qualify that a little bit. Um, I might not be perfect, but I mean, overall... I'm all right. I'm a decent person, kind person. I show up for work on time, do a decent job, treat my family decently well. Uh, I'm basic. I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm 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 all right. Um, I'm not that upset by my sin because honestly, my sin is not that bad. That, that's one way you can respond to the fact that you're a sinner. To someone saying that you're a sinner, well, okay, maybe a little bit. And I think in some sense, right? We all sometimes say that. Not, upset, not that upset by my sin, because honestly, it's not that bad. Um, that, that, that's one way we can respond. Uh, there's another way you can respond. You can say, yes, I am a sinner. You can feel it very, very heavy on you. Crushed by the guilt of it. Deeply saddened by it. Torn up by it. You can say, I know I am not a good person. I have so many regrets, so many things in my past that I've done. And it makes me feel sick when I think about them. And there are things in my present that, that I'm doing, and I feel rotten about them. And I have no hope that tomorrow I'll do any better. Um, but you know what? I'm going to keep working at it. I keep doing my hardest, um, my best shot. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make up for it somehow. I'll keep trying to pay for that debt of my sin. That's another way you can respond. And then there's a third way. The third way... Like the second way is to say, yes, I am a sinner. I'm deeply, deeply saddened by it. I, I know I'm a sinner. It cuts me to the heart that I'm a sinner. I hate my sin. But you know what? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, and his name, Jesus, means he's the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. So uh, though I'm a sinner, and though the guilt is heavy, and though I weep about it sometimes, I'm going to take it to Jesus. Because I know that He is the one who can deal with it. 
Those three responses to sin, to the fact that you're a sinner, are the three responses we see played out in the text this morning that we just read together in Matthew 26 and 27. Uh, we, we see three different people, or in one case, a group of people, and they're all responding to Jesus in different ways, and they're all sinning against Jesus in different ways, and they're all responding to the fact that they sinned against Jesus in different ways. We see, we see them... One group responds with an outright denial of any wrongdoing. Their hearts are hard and callous and do not feel any remorse for their sin. We see another, another person who is bitter with regret but tries to pay for it himself. And then we see one person who responds with a broken heart that turns toward Jesus instead of away from him. And, and as, we, as we see these, as we look at them together, as we look at them together, let this be our prayer, that the Holy Spirit would probe our hearts and show us how are we responding to the fact that we're sinners. What are we, what are we doing with it? Where are we going with, with, with that? Um, taking it to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to start, uh, we're not going to go in, in quite the order of the, the text is laid out. We're going to start in the middle with the sin of the chief priests and the elders and their, their callous indifference to the fact that they are sinners. The chief priests and elders, we, we saw their hypocrisy on display last week, earlier in chapter 26, as, uh, as, they, as they orchestrate this trial to get Jesus condemned to die. And they, they, they take really, they're, they're really careful to make sure that they meet the quota of two witnesses that the law required. But at the same time, they're, they're making up false charges, they're, they're betraying, they're, they're putting an innocent man to death, uh, they're, they're sinning in all these grievous ways while at the same time uh, pretending to keep part of the law. And we see the same thing again this week. Chapter 27, 1 through 2, uh, we see that they, they find Jesus guilty. They sentence, they sentence him to, to death. Um, they can't carry out the death penalty themselves, so they hand him over to Pilate, the, the Roman governor, who, uh, who, who is the one who has the authority to do this. Um, it's, uh, it's an astounding thing that the priests and the elders, these are the people whose job it is to lead the people in humble worship and service of God, to, to lead them to the Messiah. They're the ones who are stubbornly refusing to bow to Him and who are actually putting Him to death. They are the bloodthirsty plotters that you read so much about in Proverbs. They, are the, they, are the, they have stepped into the role of the heathen kings of Psalm 2 who are plotting together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, seeking to, to bring Him down, rebelling against, against God. Judas, Judas comes to them, 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. He acknowledges his sin to them. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They don't say, oh, you're right. And we had some part in that, didn't we? No sense that they have any guilt at all. Um, they don't acknowledge any wrongdoing on their own part. They don't say, you know what, Judas, you're wrong. It's not innocent blood. I think they know he is innocent. Jesus is innocent. But they don't feel any remorse. What do they say to Judas? It's really astounding. What is that to us, Judas? You deal with it. Loved ones, these are the priests. When you bring sin in the Old Testament to a priest, you say, I've sinned. What's the priest supposed to do? 
Let's, let, let's confess it to the Lord. Let me make a, let me make a, a sacrifice, a, a sin offering to the Lord and, and, and that you might be, your sin might be atoned for. It is their job to show mercy. But they say, deal with it yourself. Imagine coming into my study someday. Pastor, pastor, I've sinned. What's that to me? You deal with it, right? You'd get me fired as quick as you could. That's not what a pastor is supposed to do. That's not what the priests are supposed to be doing here. They are merciless, they're graceless, they're hard, they're callous. No remorse for their sin, no sympathy for Judas and his position, no forgiveness at all. So Judas, he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the ground. He storms out. And they have the audacity to pick it up and say, this is awkward, what do we do with this? Um, uh, they, they know that they, they can't uh, use this money for the temple treasury, right? They seem to be kind of bummed about this, disappointed about the fact that they can't use this money, which was gotten through the betrayal of an innocent man to die, to, to, to line the, the temple treasury with. They decide to use it to, to, to buy this potter's field, probably an area uh, uh, that had been mined for clay by a potter, no longer good for anything except to use as a burial place for, for Gentiles, for foreigners. Um, notice again, what are they doing? They're fussing over obscure details. All right, this money, oh, it was used to betray Jesus. So we, we can't put it in the temple treasury. They're, they're concerned about that, right? The, the, the obscure detail, the, the little detail of the law, but they're ignoring the whole point of the law, of love to God and love to neighbor. No mercy towards guilty Judas. No humility in their hearts. They are just self-righteous, uh, no, no sense of, of anything that, that their hearts are tender towards God. Their hearts are as hard as granite. And then as the, as the text goes on, Matthew tells us that, that their, their callous rejection of, of, of God and of, of His Savior was prophesied in Scripture. Um, Matthew quotes several passages here. He refers to Jeremiah uh, he quotes from Zechariah. He weaves in some themes from Jeremiah. Uh, it was common practice uh, in, a, in, in the ancient world that if you cited a couple of prophets, you can mix the quotes together some, and you might just attribute the better known of the prophets to it. So uh, one commentator says that here, 80% of the quote is Zechariah, 20% is Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is the better known prophet, so he gets the citation in the text from, from Matthew as he writes. Uh, let's look at the quote from, from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, uh, the Lord commands Zechariah to become a shepherd over a flock of sheep that's going to be slaughtered, and uh, he's supposed to do it well. He, this, this, sheep, this flock of sheep is set up for judgment, but Zechariah shepherds them. He does a good job, cares for them. He gets rid of some bad shepherds, but then the sheep reject him as being their shepherd. He's doing a great job. He's, he's, he's doing his job right, but they, they reject him. And they, they fire him. Uh, the, feet, the sheep fire the shepherd there in Zechariah 11. And they pay him for all his trouble a meager 30 pieces of silver. Price for a slave. 30 pieces of silver. Um, you're worth no more than a slave, Zechariah. The Lord then commands Zechariah to throw the money uh, to the potter in the temple. That's the background for the Zechariah quote. For the Jeremiah quote, it's a little less clear, but there are several themes. One, one of the places that one of these themes come out is in Jeremiah 19. 
In Jeremiah 19, God commands Jeremiah to buy a potter's vessel and to take this, this clay pot that he's bought and to go to the elders and the priests of Jerusalem and, 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 and smash the pot on the ground and say, thus the Lord is going to smash you, elders and priests who've been so unfaithful to him, who have shed innocent blood. That's the particular charge that, that is brought against them there in, in Jeremiah 19. So God will bring judgment on you for, uh, for, 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 uh, for, for shedding innocent blood. Here, here's the point, to kind of pull this together and bring it back to Matthew. Matthew, as he writes by the Spirit, is saying that just as the elders and priests of Israel rejected Zechariah from being their shepherd, and just so they've rejected Jesus from being their shepherd, and just as the, 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 the sheep in the parable there in, in Zechariah 11 rejected the shepherd and only paid him a meager 30 pieces of silver for all his trouble, so Jesus, the good shepherd, his, his life is counted cheap, no value. Um, and then as Jeremiah prophesies, the judgment of God comes on them for shedding innocent blood. So it is now, uh, Matthew saying, the judgment of God is going to come on them for shedding innocent blood. They use the blood money to buy this potter's field as a burial place for those outside the covenant, but they themselves are going to die outside the covenant. Strangers to the promises, strangers to the grace of God. Loved ones, we see three things here. We've looked at the chief priests and the elders and their sin. I want you to consider three things here, three traits that we see in them. And as we think about these things, think about this. Do you see yourself here? It's easy to point the finger and see their sin, but what do you see of yourself here? First, they spurn Jesus and condemn him to death. We might say, I have not done anything reaching that level. Right? I've done some bad things in my life. I've never, done, I've never done something like that. But what does Isaiah 53 say to us? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. One of our hymns puts it this way. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression. Thine, the deadly pain. Everything Jesus suffered was because of your sin and my sins. Even though we weren't there at that trial that night, condemning him to die. Yet in our hearts, loved ones, as rebels and sinners against God, it was for our sin that he was going to die. His blood is on the hands of every sinner in that sense. That's the first thing. Second, uh, the chief priests and elders here, they ignore the weighty matters of God's law. They just pay attention to the surface-level things. They, they skate across the surface of what God's law demands. They, they, they check the easy boxes, and they don't let the light of God's law penetrate down into the treasured darkness of their hearts. They keep it at bay. And so do we, right, often. We dodge the searching commands of God. We'll, we'll, we'll do the easy outward things, but, but when, it gets, when the law of God tries to get down into our hearts and convict us and change us and challenge us deep inside who we are, the, the walls go up. We bar the doors. And then third, the chief priests and elders feel no guilt and no grief for any sin. 
in their own hearts. They're, they're convinced of their own self-righteousness. Uh, other people's sin bothers them sometimes, but not their own sin. Um, their, their consciences are impenetrable. There's, there's no poverty of spirit in them. There's no mourning for sin in them. There's no sense that they have that, 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 that their own sin is their biggest problem. Loved ones, does your sin smite your heart? Or is it not really a big deal to you? That's the warning here. A callous, unbroken heart towards God will bring the wrath of God and the judgment of God on you. So that's the first way you can respond to sin. And we see it here in the chief priests and the elders. A callous heart, a callous indifference to him. Let's look at the second way. Bitter regret here is what we see in, in Judas. Judas and his response. Um, we've seen over the last few weeks together the, some of the, the horrors of Judas's betrayal. We, we've, we've noted that he is not just another acquaintance of Jesus, a distant follower of Jesus, but he is, he is one of the twelve. One of those who, who, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate meals with Jesus, saw all the things that Jesus did, and, and heard all the things that Jesus said. And he himself had great religious experiences. He cast out demons in Jesus' name. And he healed people in Jesus' name. And he told people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but then when it came down to it, he chose his idol, money, over the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was forced to choose, it was 30 pieces of silver meant more to him than loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, since, since Judas betrayed Jesus, uh, history has, has, has demonized him. Um, he's, he's become uh, identified with, with betrayal and, and treachery. Uh, if, if you know Dante's Divine Comedy at all, if you remember that from, from high school lit, uh, uh, Judas is in the ninth circle of hell, being devoured eternally by, by Satan himself, uh, this, this place of deepest suffering and, and torment. Uh, we, can, we can kind of turn him into a caricature uh, and not recognize the dangers of the sin that he committed in our own hearts. We, we don't like to think that, well, that could have been any of us. It could have been any one of the twelve. It could have been any, any one of us. But for the grace of God, there go I, doing the same thing. How often have I also had my heart pulled more towards an idol than to the Lord Jesus Christ? But for all the horror of what Judas did, there's something more tragic in him than in the chief priests and the elders. Uh, the, the, the chief priests and elders never loved Jesus. They never followed Jesus. And when they condemned him to die, they felt no guilt over it. Judas was so different. Um, verse 3 tells us that when he heard that Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. He, he felt regret. All the sinfulness of his own actions suddenly became clear to him. Uh, he saw that, that his hands had blood on them, that, that, that he was the one guilty for, for handing Jesus over to death. He experienced what we read earlier in Psalm 32 about the experience of a sinner who hasn't felt forgiveness yet. Uh, Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My heart was dried up as by the heat of summer. Judas felt his guilt. 
so deeply. And, and, and he sought relief from it. He goes to the priests. As we said, it's their job. That's what you do with your sin. You take it to the priests. Uh, but he finds no relief there. They say, what is it to us? You see to it. He, he, he feels the crushing weight of his guilt. So what does he do? He decides to pay for it himself. Tragically, he listens to the chief priests. You see to it, Judas. So he does. He goes out. He takes his own life. Commits suicide. Hangs himself. Loved ones, he commits murder. To commit suicide is to break the sixth commandment. It's an attempt to take the authority that God alone has over life and take it to your own hands. It is an act of rebellion. It's not an unforgivable sin. Uh, but, but, but it is a horrible and heinous sin. You might look at this and say, what, what drives Judas to do this? Is, what, what's the problem? Maybe it was that he felt his guilt too strongly. Maybe it's that, that, that he shouldn't have taken his sin so seriously. The, the, the problem is his guilty, his guilty conscience. The solution would be to, to play down his guilt. Judas, it's not really your fault. Circumstances, other things and ameliorate his suffering that way. But loved ones, the problem with Judas is not that he feels guilt when he shouldn't feel guilt. It's that his regret for sin never blossoms into repentance for sin. That in his regret, he never turns to Jesus. He feels the crushing weight of guilt, and he takes it on himself, and he doesn't look to Christ for help. He should have known. I mean, he, he, he was probably there when the paralytic came down through the roof there in Jesus' presence in that crowded house early on in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus looked down at this paralytic. And the man didn't even have to ask him for it. And Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, and there Jesus says, The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Judas, weren't you listening when Jesus said that? Or when Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Judas is heavy laden. He's laboring under the guilt of the law, crushing him. But he won't go to Jesus. Or when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has said these things. This is who Christ is, what he's come to do. Christ would have set him free from this guilt forever. But, but Judas doesn't come to him. Loved ones, this shows us that it's not enough to simply feel sorry for your sin. It's, it's not enough to have a guilty conscience, to be deeply upset by the fact that you've sinned. It's not enough to hate yourself for your sin, and you cannot pay back the debt of sin that you owe. All of that is only regret. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas's grief was a worldly grief. It was not a grief that turned towards the Lord Jesus Christ, but away from Him, and it led to death. You cannot pay the price for your own guilt. So, loved ones, the question then that we started with, 
is still unanswered, isn't it? What do you do with the fact that you're a sinner? You can't ignore it like the priests and the elders. You can't pay for it yourself the way Judas tried to. What, what do you do? Let's turn to Peter now. And the last, the last example for us. Let's see if Peter can, can, can give us some help by his example. Um, true repentance is what we see here. Number three. Uh, back, to, back to chapter 26 here. Um, Peter is struggling, caught between faith and fear. Chapter 26, verse 56, when Jesus is arrested, we're told that all the disciples run away. Chapter 26, 58, a couple of verses later, Peter, it says, follows him at a distance. One commentator says he's caught between uh, courage and cowardice. He, 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 he wants to follow Jesus, but he's too scared to be right there with Jesus. Uh, that's important, isn't it? Even as we begin to look at his great failure in chapter 26, um, the situation that he ends up being in, he's in because he wanted to follow Jesus. He didn't want it perfectly. There, it was mixed, right? Courage mixed with cowardice. But, but, but he, he, he wanted to follow Christ. His heart was still being drawn towards Christ. And he, he goes to the, the, um, the, uh, the, the priest's house there where Jesus is, too scared to go right up next to Jesus and take his stand with him, but also not willing to just utterly abandon him. Um, there's some similarity that we see between Peter and Judas. I think it's very intentional that we have Peter and Judas in this account right, uh, right, right next to each other for us to see. Um, they both, in a sense, deny Jesus and both fail in their discipleship. Uh, but, but there's also some differences, right? Judas went looking for this. Judas intentionally betrayed Jesus. Peter failed in a moment of um, temptation. Uh, Peter's more passive, sinning in a passive way. Judas more sinning in an active way. Peter has clearly got the grace of God working in his heart, even as he struggles and even as he fails. But as the story goes on, it's clear that fear wins out over his faith. Um, his failure as a disciple is complete here. We need to see this, that, that his denial of Jesus is a forceful rejection of everything that he has professed so far. The servant girl, the first servant girl, comes up to him and says, uh, uh, you were with Jesus of Galilee. It's interesting that it's highlighted for us that she's a servant girl. A servant is lower rank than Peter. A girl in that culture, lower rank than Peter. By age, lower rank than Peter. But he's still intimidated and scared by her question. Um, he denies what she says. You were with Jesus of Galilee. He says, I don't know what you're saying. That's what you say when you don't want to answer the question, isn't it? Right? Uh, uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've said something similar when someone says, what are you doing? Uh, I don't understand what you're asking. Um, he, play, he plays dumb here. Um, he moves away. He was at a fire. He moves away to get away from the unwanted attention. He moves towards the gateway. Uh, but another girl sees him, comes up to him. This, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, this time, ratchets his denial up a notch. Um, he takes an oath. He's swearing by God. He's saying, but before God, before heaven, I don't know the man. Uh, one commentator notes here that both of these girls, the way they speak about Jesus subtly denies who Jesus is. Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. Not Jesus the Christ, not Jesus the Son of Man, not Jesus the Messiah. Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't long ago that, that Peter, chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, 
when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right, that was his answer. But does he come forward here with his bold profession of faith? What do you mean, Jesus of Nazareth? He's Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. No, he doesn't. He just says, I don't know who you're talking about. Don't know him. Then it happens a third time. It happens a little while later. Someone says, Peter, your accent. You don't talk like Jerusalem people talk. You talk like those Galilee people talk. Uh, those Galilee people all came down with Jesus. You must know him. You're, with, you're one of those who is with Jesus. Um, Peter denies it. Third time. He's had time to think now. It's a little bit later. He's had time to weigh this. He's continued to decide to do this. Um, and now he ratchets it up to the, to, the, to the highest degree. He calls down curses on himself and invokes an oath. He's saying, may God condemn me if I'm not telling the truth. I've never heard of Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. There could be no more forceful way for Peter to reject Jesus here. He's denying two things, loved ones. He's denying who Jesus is. Jesus, when he's on trial before the priests and elders, and they say, are you the Christ? Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ. And you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory with all his angels in the last day. Uh, uh, but Peter, when he's asked, he says, I don't know the man that's telling I don't, I don't know the man. He is denying that Jesus is the Messiah. He also denies who he is. He is denying any affection for Jesus. He is saying, I am not a disciple of Jesus. I've never been a disciple of Jesus. I will never be a disciple of Jesus in the future. He is, he is saying in the strongest possible terms, I do not have anything to do with Christ, and I don't want anything to do with Christ. Christ. His faith is completely gone. Loved ones, he's a complete failure. All the disciples are complete failures. In fact, every single person in the gospel is a complete failure, aren't they? Apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus alone stands as the, the faithful one. And that's not true just of the disciples and Peter, but it's also true of us. Jesus is the only faithful one. How many times have we denied him? by our own actions, by our own words, saying yes to sin, saying no to Christ, saying yes to my will, no to His will. So what do we do with the fact that we are such sinners who have denied Christ, even as Peter denies Him here? The text starts to show us the answer in verses 74 to 75. Uh, G Peter, Peter, even as he's calling down this curse on himself, the rooster crows. And it says, Peter remembered the word of Jesus who'd said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Two things to see here. First of all, the direction of Peter's grief. What is it that makes Peter suddenly break down? He's been so steadfast, these three denials, ratcheting each one up against Christ. What is it that prompts this sudden change? Well, the rooster crows... And he remembers the word of Jesus. He's, he's, he's cut to the heart by Christ's word. That, that's what it is that, that comes in, razor-sharp point, pricks his heart. Christ said this would happen. My Lord Jesus Christ, just a few hours earlier, said to me that this would happen. I have rejected 
that Jesus. I have rejected the one who was, who, was, who was my king and my Messiah and my Savior. I failed Jesus. That's what's breaking his heart here. You notice it's not a self-centered grief. It's not self-pity. It's not poor me. Look at the terrible person I am. It's look what I did to my God. That, that, that's what's so important about the direction of his grief in his repentance. It's Godward. This is what we see in David in Psalm 51 as well, after he sins against Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, has her husband murdered to cover it up. And he says in Psalm 51, verse 4, to God, Lord, against you, and you only have I sinned. Wait a minute, David. You sinned against a whole host of people. Yeah, but this is what's breaking my heart most of all. I sinned against my God. And so it is with, with Jesus, uh, with, with Peter here. Jesus, I've sinned against you. That's the, that's, that's the sharp point of conviction that's pressing into his heart here. Loved ones, this needs to be the first element of our repentance. Regret is man-centered. Repentance is God-centered. If your heart is not turned Godward in your sorrow for your sin, then you're not truly repenting. Repentance turns towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see Peter doing. We're told in Luke's Gospel that at this moment, Jesus turns and looks at him from where he is in the, in the house. Peter is apparently looking at him too. He sees, that, he sees that look. It cuts him to the heart. After this, where does Peter go? He goes back to the other disciples, still seeking their fellowship and company because he loves the Lord Jesus. After Jesus is crucified, what does he do on the first day of the week? He goes running to the tomb when he's heard a word of hope. Um, there's still the fog of fear and, the, and, 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 and doubt for, for, uh, for some days, but his heart is still yearning for Christ, turning towards Christ. And that is, um, that is the, what we need, loved ones. The direction of our repentance and our grief for our sin needs to be Godward. Turn towards Christ. Second, note, note the depth of his, of his grief. Peter is not just a little bit ashamed of what he's done. He is, he is completely undone. Um, the text says he weeps bitterly. Mark's gospel says he broke down and wept. Peter is overwhelmed by his by his sin. He does not make excuses for himself. He, he weeps. His grief is proportionate to the wrong that he has done. Loved ones, is your grief over your sin proportionate to it? Is, is your sadness over your sin proportionate to the sinfulness of your sin? Does it, does it reach all the way down into your heart, that, that, that grief towards God for what you've done against him? This is how we are to respond to the fact that we are sinners. Loved ones, we started by asking um, what you do with your sin. And now we've looked at these three, these three examples, these three options. Callous indifference and the chief priests and the elders. Uh, guilt and trying to pay for it yourself like Judas. Grief and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ like Peter. What are you doing with your sin? Are you turning to Christ doing what Peter begins to do here, asking that God himself would give you repentance, that, that he would make your heart cut to the core with, with, with grief over your sin, turning Godward in your repentance. 
This is such an important question. But I want to close with a more important question. And that is, that is this. What, what does God do with your sin? We've asked, what do, what do we do with the fact that we're sinners? What does God do with it? Two things. He forgives. If you insist you're not a sinner, like the chief priests and the elders, the text tells us that you'll face his judgment. If you insist on paying for your sins yourself, like Judas, you'll also face God's, God's judgment. But if, like Peter, you grieve over your sin to God, then he'll forgive you, and he himself will pay the debt of your sin, and he himself will, will forgive you. The, the amazing grace of Christ to Peter is, is, is in the background here, as Peter denies Christ, as Peter rejects and renounces Christ and any relationship to Christ, Jesus is faithful unto death for Peter. That even, as, even as Peter is in this moment of his, of his complete failure as a disciple, Jesus is succeeding as his Savior, paying for his sin, paying the debt to purchase his, his forgiveness. And it's wonderful to read later on in the Gospel, when Jesus rises from the dead, appears to Mary outside the tomb on the first day of the week, and he says, go, go tell my brothers. He's talking about his disciples. Go tell my brothers, who all ran off and denied me. They're my brothers. That, that I'm going before them to Galilee, and they'll see me there. And in one gospel he says, go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. The forgiveness of Christ is, is complete. That He is the one who, who fully pays, pays for the sin. That there's no barriers to the relationship. Christ has paid it all. And, and, and Peter is, is completely restored. So, loved ones, the, the wonderful encouragement of the text is if you take your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will forgive it and pay for it all Himself and restore you to Himself. Take your faithlessness and your cowardice and your failure to stand up, and your denial of Christ, and your guilty conscience, take it to Him. Don't pay for it yourself. Take it to Him. He's paid for it all. He'll forgive you. And then He'll free you. Jesus forgives Peter, and then Peter's life changes, doesn't it? As far as we know, Peter does not go on to deny Jesus again. Does he? He's a changed man when Christ rises from the dead and shows him this forgiveness. There is another time in his life where he slips up, where he caves to peer pressure. He's, he gives in to the Judaizers and their influence, and Paul rebukes him for it, and he repents of that. But, 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 but loved ones, Peter, as an apostle from this point on, is a changed man who learns to deny himself and take up his cross in just a few short chapters. Uh, uh, a little bit later on in the story, if you read into the book of Acts, you see that Peter rejoices to suffer for Christ's sake. That he stands before the chief priests and the elders, and he says, Jesus is the Christ, and I won't stop preaching about it, even if you kill me. He, he's faithful. It would not be long before he would be imprisoned for the gospel, beaten for the gospel, and he would rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And it would not be too long, a matter of years, before he himself would be crucified for faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ set him free from his sin. Christ changed his heart. Christ got to work. And so, loved ones, take your sin to Christ who forgives you of all and who frees you and works in you to build up your faith. Take it to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness and the freedom of the gospel. 
we pray that we would take our guilt and our sin to you, that we would not seek to pay for it ourselves, that we'd not live in denial of it, but would run to the one Savior who is sufficient for sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.